All right. Hey, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, turn with me to Psalm 39. Psalm 39 is where we're beginning tonight. Last week, we began a series on what we're calling the Jedithin Psalms. There are three Psalms in the book of Psalms that are specifically dedicated to an individual. There's Psalm 39, Psalm 62, and Psalm 77. And they're all addressed to the same guy, and nobody else in all the Psalter gets uh, a song addressed to them. And we took a biographical look at this guy, Jedithin, last week, and we drew a parallel between his calling and our own calling, his experience and that of our Christian faith, as we are given songs and melodies to play through our lives in the service of our King. And when you look at these three psalms that are dedicated to him, the first thing that kind of stands out to you is that they are not very cheery at all. Uh, they're, they're, they're probably not the psalms you would pick for yourself to, to define your life or, or to be given to you as a gift. You wouldn't register for these psalms if you were, you know, throwing, you know, if you were getting married or if you were having a baby shower or something like that, you know, you go and you register for gifts. Well, if you could register for one of the 150 psalms, you're probably not going to register for any one of these psalms. And yet they're the ones that were given to him. Even though they're not very upbeat, they were songs that were delivered to him on purpose for the benefit of the kingdom and for God's people. And in the hands of a faithful servant like Jeduthun, they bore eternal fruit, they left a lasting legacy, and they still minister even today, right? You and I are reading these psalms and uh, gaining encouragement from them. Now tonight we begin the first of the Jeduthun songs, Psalm 39. It's often called a funeral psalm, and you maybe have even heard it at a funeral, but the message in these verses is far too urgent and important for us to put off until the day of our death. It's really about the shortness, the brevity of life, and it preaches the truth that all too often human lives are wasted if they're not lived for the Lord. Now when you read these verses, you quickly find that David, the author of the words, he was in dark days. He was feeling defeated and discouraged, will find that he was being disciplined by God as a result of some sin, and he was being physically afflicted. And as he struggled through this period of his life, he seems to have slipped into a real depression. I mean, it, just to set us up for it, these, it's, it's not cheery words, they're not um, super upbeat. Um, he's slipped into a spiritual depression. He found himself thinking that there was little point to this short life and that he was never going to find the light at the end of the tunnel that he was in. But David was not only depressed, he also had a problem. You see, he was deeply frustrated with what was going on, but he was afraid what the effect of voicing his frustrations might be on the unbelievers around him. So he had some things he wanted to say and to get off of his chest, but he was concerned about how that was going to come across to the people around him. So that's where we begin in this song. A song, remember, that was hand-delivered to Jejethin to prepare, to present as a melody of praise to the Lord for the people and was really to come to uh, be forever attached to who he was as a servant of the king. And so as we apply it to our own lives, we want to look first at the immediate issue that David was facing and then take a moment to consider the ultimate issue that he would discuss 
in the verses. The immediate issue was that David needed to find a way to conduct himself during this time of spiritual depression. So verse 1 begins there in the title, To the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. And so David had some things that he really wanted to get off of his chest, but he's concerned that his complaint about what's going on in his life and the voicing of his frustration with his spiritual life at the time, he's worried that that might move into the area of sin, and he especially doesn't want to give the unbelievers around him a reason to mock God or reject God. He doesn't want to say something that's going to be overheard by uh, the world around him and be responded to like this, if your God is so loving and so powerful and so true, well then how could you possibly be experiencing the difficulty that you're experiencing right now? And so uh, that was a real possibility and it was a real concern in his mind. Now, looking here at this opening verse, David has a good goal, okay? If we look at the, the aim of his, of his mind and the goal of his desire here, uh, his desire is great in that he's concerned about his testimony. He's concerned about honoring the Lord with the way that he lives his life. He wants to be careful about what's coming out of his mouth because he doesn't want to sin against the Lord. But we're going to see in these verses that his plan absolutely crashes and burns in a spectacular way. Uh, after putting this plan of verse 1 into action, he's going to end up worse than he was before. So what's the problem? If the goal is good, and if he's trying to put a spiritual plan into action, why is he going to sink deeper into depression in the following verses? Well, before we see the, uh, you know, the result of what happens, take a look at, at the plan itself here. What does he begin with? He begins with, I said. I said I'm going to do this. It's a plan he's made for himself. He's fashioned it for himself. He went to the drawing board and he drew up a scheme that seemed to be good in his mind. And he imposed a a sort of arbitrary and external set of restrictions and rules onto his life at that time in hopes that that would solve the spiritual problem he was facing. Right? I'll just keep my mouth shut, he says, and that will keep me from sin, and that will keep you know, my spiritual testimony totally intact. And he said, here's what I'm going to do to prevent myself from doing the wrong thing. And so it's a human answer to an eternal question or a spiritual problem. And that's why we're going to find out that it doesn't work. And to be fair, David was strict and disciplined. It's not that he was half-hearted in his measure. He said, I'm going to muzzle myself. And if you've ever muzzled a dog, I mean, that's a pretty serious way of restraining the dog's activity. And it's pretty effective, right? If you don't want a dog to bite somebody, you properly put a muzzle on there. You've, you've solved some of the problem. You've solved the problem of the dog being able to bite, but... The dog can still get all riled up, can he? Well, David recognized that his mouth was like a wild animal that could do some serious damage. And that's a good thing. Again, good goal, good desire, and good realization here. He's thinking, you know, I've got a lot going on. There's a lot that I want to say. I have a lot of frustration. I'm in this period of sort of dark days in my spiritual life. I want to keep my testimony intact. I'm worried about how I'm going to come across to people because I'm struggling through some things. And so 
he has just a good realization here or he recognizes something that's true is that, hey, my mouth is like a wild animal. And if I'm not careful, my mouth can cause some real damage. And of course, James, uh, the apostle, he talks about this at length in his epistle, right? I mean, he talks all about the danger of the tongue and how, man, no man can tame the tongue. Something that David would have been good to uh, learn here at this point. And so, while it's true that the mouth was like a wild animal, the problem with David's plan here is that his mouth is not the source of his words, right? He's saying, I've got this stuff that's going to come out. I don't want to sin against the Lord. I don't want to ruin my testimony. Here's what I'll do. I'll muzzle my mouth. But the problem is the mouth isn't the source of those words or those dangers. The mouth isn't the source of sin. It's simply the apparatus we use to convey thoughts and words, Right? It's just the exit point where all of that stuff flows out. And so like all external acts of legalism, David is actually unwittingly setting himself up for failure because as he's going to discover, the mouth isn't the real issue. And no human effort can stop the flow of sin that comes out of the heart. And notice that there's no mention of God in this opening verse, in his plan. Yes, he mentioned sin, but look at how he spoke. I said... I will guard, I will restrain. It's all human effort. It's all a human plan for a spiritual problem. Let's see how it worked out. Verse 2. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good. And my sorrow was stirred up. So this was not the result he probably sketched out for himself. When he was working out the formula to solve this problem he was facing, he didn't think this is how it would solve. Uh, This is not what he was looking for. In fact, he says, man, my internal misery was not solved or abated. In fact, he says, my pain increased. The term for sorrow there indicates an extreme distress and anguish. And so his condition worsened inside. But not only that, now no good things were coming out either. So not only had he solved the issue of of the, the bad stuff that he was concerned about, but now all of the good stuff had been stopped up as well. The praise and the thankfulness and the honor and the you know worship that he was so known for, the things he loved to give to the Lord, well, those were no longer being broadcast from his lips. He's like, I didn't even say anything good. I was just a silent mute. He had a real problem here. Now, these two verses, Psalm 39, 1 and 2, I think they should just be the slogan for legalism. If you want to sell legalism and have a brochure, man, these should be the two verses that they're building your program off of. Now, a a person who's trapped by legalism wouldn't admit that this is what's going on, but this is what happens when we try to use external human efforts to rid ourselves from sin or to achieve what we think is spirituality. And we can't do it through our own strength. You can't do it by might or by power, but by the Spirit of God. And the things that human beings try to do in order to keep ourselves at some arbitrary level of spirituality, well, they actually end up making us worse off than we were before, like David is here. In verse 3, David gets down to the heart of the issue, which was the heart. He says, My heart was hot within me while I was musing, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. You see, the heart was where the work really needed to be done, not the mouth. Jesus explained in Matthew and Luke that it is out of the abundance of the heart that our mouths speak after all. So no muzzle was going to really solve the turmoil that he was in. He needed a heart procedure. He needed an operation, you know, on that part of his life and on the heart of who he was. If you had a heart attack, right, 
and you went to the doctor, you went to the emergency room, you know what they, you don't want them to bring in? A dentist. Oh, I'll help you out right now. I brought my drill. I brought my tools. I brought my filling. I'm going to fill up all the cavities. I need a heart doctor. I need a cardiologist. I need like a team of people who are going to keep me from crashing here. And the problem was, David went to go see a dentist for a heart issue. And so uh, it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so all of David's efforts to muzzle his tongue were simply like trying to put a cork on an active volcano. And we see here in verse 3 that while his vow of silence may have looked effective on the outside for a time, the pressure was building inside, right? Just he said, man, while I was waiting and while I was thinking and while I was musing, the pressure was building, the fire was building, the the temperature was rising, and that powder keg was going to blow. It was the heart that needed the work, not the tongue. And if the external behavior was all that needed adjusting, well, then the Pharisees would be the greatest heroes in the New Testament, right? If, if it was the external, it was all that we needed to worry about and all that we needed to take charge of and all we needed to work on, well, then the Pharisees are the great heroes of the New Testament. Instead, they're the great villains of the New Testament, right? If you talk about who are the worst group of guys in the, in the New Testament or in the gospel, oh, the Pharisees, of course. They were whitewashed tombs. They spoke holy things. They externally had all of these rules and all of these rituals and all of these things. But what? They breathed hatred and murder nonstop. And the Lord uh, condemned them for the way that they lived their lives. And so David, for sure, is at a very troubling point in his spiritual life. And before we see what happens next, I do want us to just be encouraged by his testimony. These are dark verses uh, from a sort of spiritual standpoint, but I think we can be encouraged by these things, not because we want to stay in times of discouragement or doubt, not because we want to just give up in the Christian life and say, well... There's no point being disciplined in my spiritual life. I don't want to become a legalist. That's, that's not the teaching here at all. That's not it. But in passages like this, we see that the reality of this life is that there will be times when we have to deal with some troubling things in our lives or in our hearts. That walking with Jesus is not always just smooth sailing where everything's fine and I never have any problems and I never have any doubts and I never have any shortcomings or failures. Everything is just fine all the time. Well, that's not true at all and that's not what we see demonstrated on the pages of Scripture. And you know what? God is not afraid of the fact that we will go through times of discouragement or difficulty in our spiritual lives. God isn't angry or afraid of a prayer like, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I love that prayer in the Gospels. When that dad comes and he's in a time of real desperation, he, he's trying to get his kids saved from death, and what does he say? And the Lord says, hey, do you believe? And he says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's not a bad prayer. It's an honest prayer. And we should be encouraged by prayers like that. We should be encouraged by examples like David where we can see, hey, this is a real man who struggled with real discouragement and real difficulty. And we'll see later on, hey, it's brought on by his own failure. And he had to do, a, you know, he had to do business with God and have God restore him and cleanse him from his sin and all of that. But uh, what a great example for us that we don't have to fake with God. You can't fake with God. You can't pretend with God, and yet that's our inclination. That's what we tend to do, try to fake God out and pretend like, well, nothing's wrong. I don't want to tell God that I'm struggling with some area of discouragement or frustration in my Christian life. 
God doesn't want us to try to varnish our relationship with him or put on a mask when we come to you know, talk with him. That's not going to work. It's not going to work at all. It's not going to be good for us, and he already knows what's going on. And so David is a great example of someone who was really honest with God. He was honest with God when everything was good and everything was just praise and thankfulness. And you know what? He was honest with God as well when he was in a time of spiritual struggle. And that didn't make him a worse believer. David is one of the models of intimacy with God, right? We, if you're around the Bible for, you know, any good length of time, you know that David is called what? The man after God's own heart. And we look at his story full of, you know, all kinds of strange things. He's an adulterer. He was a murderer. But what do we remember about David? Oh, that he had communion with the living God and that God had this special covenant with him and that he understood the heart of God and that the Lord was with him and was guiding him and helping him and restoring him when he sinned. And that's a great model for us. And so the Lord wants us to relate to him honestly and personally, even in those times when we struggle. He doesn't want, what he doesn't want for us is to, for us to bind ourselves up in some legalism or some man-made plan of human effort to try to fix our spiritual issues. The Lord doesn't ask us to come to him whipping ourselves, right? And you hear these sad stories from ancient times or in the Middle Ages where these people who were trying so desperately to be more spiritual and they thought, well, I'll have to crawl on my knees on glass. I'll have to whip myself. I'll have to hurt myself and do all these things because then God will love me. And that's not who God is. That's never how God is revealed in the Bible. He doesn't want that. He's not looking for us. He's not waiting for us to put some man-made arbitrary plan of human effort into action before he shows his love to us. That, that's a work that God does. The, the cleansing and the restoring and the operating and the transforming, well, that's the work of God done in the lives of his people. Now, in verse 4, we see that when David reached his boiling point, when that volcano was going to blow, when words had to be vented out, he couldn't go on as he was anymore. And he made the right choice, though, took his heart and his words to the Lord in prayer. And we see in verse 4 his prayer, Lord, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. You know, David was a fast learner. Uh, I I appreciate that about him. His big plan in verse 1 to solve his own spiritual problem, well, that didn't work. So now he doesn't try to go back to the drawing board and figure out some other scheme or system or, you know, uh, framework to make himself right He says, well, I didn't work. I'm going to go to prayer, and I need God to solve this for me. I need the Lord to take charge of this situation and take charge of the reins of my heart and and do some transformation here. He goes to prayer and immediately invites God to transform his mindset and his understanding so that he could have the proper perspective. Quick learner. I appreciate that about David. Through this prayer, David admits that he had been looking at things in a wrong way, and he recognized that his primary need in that moment of discouragement and defeat and difficulty, well, his primary need was that he would get what we would call in the New Testament the mind of Christ, right? We're told in the New Testament, hey, let the mind of Christ be in you. And effectively, that's what David is praying. He didn't have, you know, the terminology or all the understanding that we do since we're on this side of the cross and we know who Jesus is and the Messiah and all that. But effectively, what David is praying is, Lord, I need your perspective. I need you to invade my thinking and help me to understand life 
properly from heaven's perspective. Now let's look at his request for a moment. He asks for some pretty significant inside knowledge, doesn't he? I mean, look what he says. He says, make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. Now, some commentators sort of write this off and say he's not actually praying to know, you know, the date of his death. He's just praying that, you know, he'd have, you know, a heavenly mindset. Okay, or maybe he's actually praying to the Lord, hey, Lord, I want to know how much longer I have. I'm not sure, you know, I'm not a linguist, and we weren't there, and we can't ask David ourselves, but you know what I do know about David is that he asked big in prayer, right? And he he was not afraid to just get into the nitty-gritty with the Lord in prayer. And so we want to make room for the fact that we are dealing with poetry here, right? I mean, he's composing a song, a piece of poetry, and we, we make room for that, obviously, but... A plain reading shows that what David is doing for sure is being bold with the Lord, and he's clearly asking that God would reveal critical things to him for the sake of his spiritual life, right? We can all agree with that. Whether he was specifically asking, like, I want to know the moment that I'm going to die, I, you know, probably not. But he is asking the Lord, hey, I want to know some critical things, Lord. I, I want you to reveal some things to me for the sake of my spiritual life. One translation puts it this way. Make known to me, O Lord, my end and the number of my days. What is it in order that I would know what I am lacking? And that's a hard prayer to pray for ourselves. If you took that prayer tonight and went home and, and, and prayed, I mean, that's kind of a hard prayer. It's one of those things like when you pray for patience, you think, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to ask the Lord for patience? Or, you know, do I really want to ask the Lord for endurance and suffering? You know, and sometimes we think, man, these are some tough prayers. But what a great prayer for us to pray here, what he says in verse 4. What a great about face from verse 1 where David was making his own plan for spiritual greatness. And now he's just asking the Lord, Lord, you know what? Show me how weak I am. Show me, you know, how fleeting this life is so that I can have a proper mindset, not only about what's going on right now in this time of difficulty, in this sort of dark, you know, tunnel that I'm in, but just in the whole of my life. I want to have your mindset. I want to have your mentality. I want to have a proper perspective. And so, hard prayer to pray for ourselves, but a good one. You know, knowing our weaknesses isn't a bad thing. In fact, we know from God's Word that it's actually a very good thing for Christians to know our weaknesses, both when it comes to sort of like our weaknesses in temptation or in the flesh or those sorts of things, and just our our regular weaknesses, things that we're not gifted in, things that we're not strong in, not necessarily sin issues, but just where we're weak and where we're stronger, where we're gifted, where we're not gifted. And certainly it's good to know, hey, Lord, where are my weaknesses when it comes to sin? Where where are my soft spots? When the enemy takes a look at me, where are the soft targets that I need to take extra care to protect? Uh, it's a very good thing. You know, the Bible says what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And that means those who recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt and are in absolute need of a Savior who can come in and revolutionize their life. The Bible says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Bible says God's strength is made perfect in weakness, right? And here, not only is David pivoting from relying on his own strength to relying on the Lord, which is a great thing, he's also moving from having a focus on the immediate struggle in his life to having a wider mindset. He's looking at the ultimate course of his life, which he continues in verse 5. 
Indeed, you have made my days as handbreadths, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly, every man at his best state is but vapor. Interesting, he prayed that God would show him his end and the measure of his days, and while there's no indication that the Lord gave him his death clock, right, we see that his prayer was somewhat answered in verse 5, right? I mean, he says, wow, man, the Lord spoke to my heart and, I, and, and filled his thoughts with the brevity of life and, and made him realize that, yeah, indeed, which, man, behold, look, surely our lives on earth are short, a tiny blip on the radar, a thin vapor that vanishes after only a moment in comparison to eternity. You know, there were various measurements in the Bible, and in Bible times there was the cubit, right, which was either the elbow to the wrist or the elbow to the fingertips, depending on who you ask. There was the span, which was the length between the tip of the thumb and the tip of the pinky. Um, and then there was the handbreadth, which was just the width of your four fingers pressed together. And as far as I know, that was the smallest one of these sort of arm-hand measurements. And that would be small on its own, right? But David was always thinking about the immense magnificence of God, and so he puts the Lord in the middle of the verse for scale. You ever take a picture of like a spider for Instagram or something, you've got to put something in there for scale. And whenever we go down to Columbia, there's all kinds of weirdo dinosaur bugs down there. And so we'll be down there, and there'll be some weird beetle or like a big tarantula or something, and we're like, we've got to take a picture of the thing, but it's no good if we don't have scale. So let me put their thumb down there. And so we have these pictures like where one of us is like sliding our thumb in or we like throw a quarter in there because you want to see the scale of it, right? So David is thinking about the brevity of life and you notice he kind of puts God in for scale there in the middle of the verse. When you put God in for scale, well man, even the greatest man alive on earth is as nothing compared to the Lord. Just nothing. is zero. Zero. It, it does, he doesn't even register. The greatest man at his greatest state you can't even measure him next to the Lord. It's like when you see these comparisons of the earth to the sun, to the next biggest star, to the next biggest star, right? I mean, you lose the earth after moving past the sun, right? You can kind of see the earth is really small next to the sun, and then as soon as they move, you can't see the earth anymore. It's smaller than a pixel on your computer screen. And that's what, the, what David is saying here. When we compare ourselves or the greatest man in all the earth Next to the Lord, well, it's nothing, zero. The best man at his best state is like a puff of mist in front of an eternal God, omnipresent, all-powerful, who created heaven and earth. A great picture of scale for us. At the end of verse 5, we see that term that pops up from time to time in the Psalms, Selah. There's debate over the exact purpose and meaning, and it's generally understood that it's a point where you should stop and look and listen and consider what has just been said. And so that's where we're going to park for the evening and for the week. But let's consider what we've seen so far. We have the immediate and the ultimate on display. In the immediate, David is struggling in his spiritual life. And we'll find out more about that in the coming verses, in the coming weeks. But he's distressed, he's discouraged. Trying to ignore spiritual problems, that's not going to work. But trying to solve spiritual problems with human solutions, that's not going to work either. And David knows and realizes that the solution to his spiritual problem is is to go to his loving Savior who can address these things and put right what has gone wrong in his heart. You know, legalism and arbitrary man-made schemes cannot draw us closer to God. They just can't. 
They look great from one perspective, but they end up actually doing more damage than, uh, than you started out with. It's like if I'm fixing something at my house. It seems like a great idea, but by the end, I've actually created a much larger job for someone else to fix, someone who's actually qualified. You see, we're not qualified to repair the spiritual problems of our lives or the spiritual problems of our hearts. We need God to do that. Only the Lord can address those sorts of issues. And so the way that we uh, have the Lord address those issues is to do what David did. Just invite God in. Hey, Lord, examine my heart. Come in and reveal your will and accomplish your purposes by your power. I'm inviting you. I'm allowing you. I want to do what you want. I want what you want. Please come in and, and do your work. And that's what the Lord wants to do. But then we also see the issue of the ultimate here as David thinks about the big picture and about life and the brevity of life and what that means. Now, David thinks about the shortness of life, and in all honesty, honesty, it's, it's just going to bum him out as the psalm progresses. Uh, he comes across a lot more like his son Solomon in Ecclesiastes than we might expect. But we have to remember how limited his understanding was about the the things of God, right? I mean... David is an inspiration to us, and he should be, but we're actually in a much better spiritual position than he was. His Bible was just the first six books of the Old Testament, maybe Job, maybe Judges, and then he would have known the story of his great-grandparents, Ruth and Boaz, but that's it. That was his Bible. That was the extent of the revelation that he had received, the Word of God, right? He didn't have the rest of it. What do we have? We have the full revelation of God. We have 66 books in comparison to his eight or nine, right? We understand a lot more about who God is, God's program, not just for the world, but for us as individuals. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit, something else that David did not have in the same way. And so we're in a much better position. And so the thought of life being a vapor, well, that does not have to be one of sadness uh, for us the way that it seems to be for him at this point. Instead, as we look at what God has done and what he wants to do, it should make us excited to live out this life no matter how short it may be in comparison to eternity. It's called a vapor, not just here, but also in the New Testament. The New Testament also tells you, hey, your life is a vapor. That's just fact. That's just reality and we should accept that. But you know what? It's a great reminder that God likes to work with vapor. He breathes life into man, not just Adam and Eve, but you and I as well. The Bible says that in a variety of places. For example, Job 33 verse 4, the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Acts 17 says the same thing and that God's desire is to satisfy every need of these people that he has created. And so David looked at the brevity of life and he said, well, my life is as nothing before the Lord. And because he wasn't in a proper mindset yet at this point, he's just kind of bummed out by it and he's feeling like, well, everything is vanity and that's why he's inviting the Lord to do some operation on his heart. But we understand from our position that God's point is to make something out of our nothing. Yeah, in comparison to eternity, this life is nothing. It's a vapor that appears for a moment and is gone. And if you tried to line it up on a chart somewhere, you'd say, well, that's nothing. And God says, that's exactly right. And I'm going to make something out of your nothing. I'm going to breathe life into you. And I'm going to use you, 
who should be nothing in the grand scheme of things to do incredible things for my glory. And I'm going to bless you and I'm going to satisfy you. I'm going to fill you up with abundant life along the way. There's a remarkable, mysterious flower called the Sirius Gregei. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right. It's also called Arizona's Queen of the Night. Anybody ever heard of this flower? This is a real thing. I'm just going to go on record as saying this is a real thing that I have fact-checked, reported on by the Smithsonian and other places, okay? One of our pet peeves here is that people who teach the Bible make up illustrations that aren't real. But this is real. This is a real thing. (laughs) It's called the Arizona's Queen of the Night. They grow in the dry soils of the Southwest. And they're very mysterious because for reasons scientists don't understand... These flowers bloom usually all at once together, just one night a year, and then they're done. Now, a flower can come up with another blossom, but that blossom that the flower grows will bloom one night a year, and then that is it. And they are known for their ethereal, star-like blossoms, and after giving off their famously hypnotic scent, the flowers wilt just a few hours later. In 2015, 1,500 people turned out to a nature preserve in Tucson, Arizona to witness these flowers, the largest collection of them together, bloom. And guess what? Their, their blossoms are palm size, about, about a hand breadth. That's how big they are. I'm not making this stuff up. I, I have my footnote here, smithsonianmagazine.com. But these special flowers, we look at them where I think, on one hand, man, how fragile, how fleeting, But does anybody think, what a waste of a flower? How dumb is that? It's just gone. No, it's a special thing. We look at that and we think, wow, that in the dark of the night, in the dry of the southwestern soil, these flowers, and you're never sure when it's going to happen, but all of a sudden they just bloom, and they bloom together into this beautiful blossom, and they give off this incredible fragrance. And yeah, after a few hours they wilt, and they're just gone. But what a night, right? What a powerful thing. More than a thousand people showed up to, to see it happen just in one spot. And they said there's records of since before World War II, people going out to informal gatherings because they say, hey, the flowers are almost about to bloom and they go out to watch them bloom. What a really neat thing. Now think about how much more important your life is than some flower in Arizona. How much more significant your life is in the hands of of the God who created that flower and who gives life to that flower. He gave much more life to you, much more purpose to you. Jesus talked about this. He's like, hey, the Lord knows, God knows about every single sparrow that falls. How much more value are you than all the sparrows, right? And that's the message here. I mean, our lives may be a vapor, but in the hands of God, they can be a magnificent thing, a fragrant thing, something that the world turns out to see. Because we're in the hands of a God who cleanses us of our sins so that we don't have to try to cleanse ourselves. He comforts us in our sorrow. He empowers us to overcome the flesh and the failures of this life. And then he puts our lives on display that this dark night, the world would see the blossoms of his grace and his strength working in us and through us no matter how short our lives may be. And so, we would say with Jejuthin, this is our song. And you can tell everybody this is your song. This is your story and this is your song. And this is the kind of work that God wants to do through your life, which, sure, may be a vapor, 
But we're looking forward to an eternity alive with Jesus Christ. And in this short life, God can do great and powerful, beautiful things as he works in and through us for his good pleasure. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing and praise the Lord for who he is and what he's done. Lord.